Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Chat, where we're working to destroy and dismantle stereotypes about justice-impacted people. We can't wait for you to hear from our next guest, so stay tuned. Welcome to another episode of The Chat, and we are so honored to have with us here today, Carrie Blakinger. Uh, Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, She is the author of Corrections in Ink, a memoir that has a wonderful review by Piper from Orange is the New Black. And you have also been a figure skater and you are currently an investigative reporter. Um, Yeah, we're we're just excited. I'm probably leaving a few things out, but (laughs) we are excited to have you here and really wanted to dive in about um, just kind of your passion for this area of work and who have been instrumental mentors in your life to this point. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I have a, I have a few different mentors. I think, um, I think the first one, which is actually kind of relevant to what we were talking about or what you were talking about with, you know, the book and all is uh, a guy named Chris Tomlinson, who is, it's such a, so unlikely that we would be friends or that he would have been a mentor to me, but he is a white guy in his fifties. Who's like the business columnist at the Houston Chronicle. And this looks like a very, if you just look at us, we objectively look like an unlikely combination of people to be friends. Cause uh, you know, I have half my head shaved and like piercings and tattoos. And, you know, he's always in like a tie and dressed up like boring, how you expect a business columnist to dress. Right. Um, but when I was at the Houston Chronicle, which I worked there for three years um, at some point he approached me cause he needed he needed some help finding sources relating to a column that he was working on. And uh, we went out for drinks and he started telling me about his reporting career, which he had a you know long and really interesting reporting career before he became a columnist. He'd been a uh, bureau chief for the AP in East Africa. So he was embedding in multiple wars and he covered, you know, the end of apartheid. He covered Rwanda. He covered some really crazy stuff over the years and um you know as we talked about his reporting background i just had all these questions and i was as a reporter fascinated by it but we also had this other huge thing in common was which is that you know we both did jobs that involved a lot of trauma in very different ways but you know for me i was reporting on prisons which meant sort of reliving my own trauma from, you know, prison and addiction and stuff um, constantly all the time as part of my job. And uh, I think that, you know, between our interests in reporting and our uh, past experiences with trauma, we had a lot to bond over. And, you know, he ended up becoming a good friend and mentor. And he was sort of the person that I would run all my stories by and be like, hey, should I pitch this one? Is this a good idea? And then when it came time to writing a book, I, you know, mostly talked to him about it because he had written a book before and had been a New York Times bestseller and it was a memoir. So there was a lot of overlap in terms of understanding how to do this and go about this process. And uh, when I had to write a book proposal, because you write a book proposal before you actually write the entire manuscript, um, when I had to write a book proposal, he helped line edit the whole thing. And then when I got to writing the book, 
he, he was the first person to read every chapter when I finished them. So, uh, you know, he's, he's put an incredible amount of time into just helping me develop as a writer and I mean, as a person, honestly. And, um, then I ended up spending some of the pandemic living with him and his wife because, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't have, I, I didn't have anyone and was just sort of spending all that time alone. So it's been a, you know, much more of a friendship than I would have ever guessed I would end up with from a business columnist at a paper in Texas. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, it makes me think of a couple of questions. One is obviously like, what is a manuscript? These are totally different questions too. So please feel free to answer in any, any way that feels good. Um, but like, what is, you talked about this like pre-manuscript that this person helped you with. I never even knew that that was a thing. It sounds very interesting and like a lot of labor. And then two, like, how did you um, allow yourself to be vulnerable to that relationship, to be open to it and allow this person to give you this type of advice and, and, you know, trust them? Well, um, so in terms of the manuscript question, um, when you sell a book through traditional publishing outlets, you start with what's called a book proposal. And you give that to, you know, your agent who then goes and sells the idea of the book based on a proposal. They go and sell that to the um, to a publisher. So and then the publisher pays you money up front to go write the book. So the book proposal is like a 40 to 60 page um, sort of outline of the book, but also like a marketing plan. And you have to try to, you know, explain why your book will sell and, you know, convince the publisher that you have enough of a presence and a brand that people will buy your book because you're not just trying to convince them that you can write and that you have this planned out well, but that you can also actually sell a book and that it will be worth their investment in you. So, you know, the proposal is in some sense sort of a useless internal document. Like it's not at all what your book looks like, you know, because it's a it, it's summaries and it's a detailed outline. It's not like I it's not like I really used pieces of it in the book, but yet it's like 40 to 60 pages that you need to sell the book. Um, so he helped with the proposal. And then, you know, I gave the proposal to my agent in i think i turned over the final proposal and the proposal took me like six months because i also had you know a regular full-time job at that point i think i gave the proposal to my agent in like mid 2019 and then they edited it for a couple months and ended up selling it to a publisher by the end of 2019 um and then you know i had I think I had a year and a half to actually write the book, which was around uh, 90,000 words. I think maybe, maybe we agreed to 85,000 and it came out to 90, I think. Wow. Yeah. So obviously a ton of work <laughs> goes into it. <laughs> um, and I love the cover. It's just, I love the colors and the title of it too. Corrections in ink. Um, is that a title that you came up with yourself? That is actually a title that um, my best friend and I uh, workshopped. Um, 
in order to sell the like proposal, I needed some kind of title and I really just didn't have one. And so we just sort of, you know, she came up with something that would just sort of be a placeholder, but then it ended up being the best title that we came up with. So, um, so yeah, that ended up being the title that stuck. I mean, obviously it's playing on a few things, um, in terms of, you know, corrections, uh, as in like the correction system and also in terms of, uh, you know, in, in terms of like correcting writing. Ah, I wasn't sure if you just had a bunch of tattoos like I do, (laughs) but that makes more sense. Well, well, it's funny because it sounds like a tattoo memoir, right? Like this was my going joke that like, this was the thing I didn't like about that title was that it sounded like it was a tattoo memoir. So I, my going joke had been that I'm just going to have to spend all the money on tattoos until the title fits. And, um, I actually did get a bunch of tattoos with book money. So that's fantastic. Well, I it is, I like that it sounds that way. So, but I, I actually like your definition of it better. Um, <laughs> so the real definition of it better. So yeah, I mean, just there's a, there's um, a little bit more about like how you allowed yourself to be vulnerable to this relationship, you know, and rely on this person. I think that a lot of folks. It, no matter what their walks of life, but especially those that have been directly impacted, have such a hard time with being vulnerable and trusting other people um, because of like the harm that the correction system does to all of us. So what what allowed you to kind of open yourself up in that way to say, I trust this person. I know this person has my best interests. They're here to help me and they're going to help me reach my goals. Like what things um, what things allowed you to do that? Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to this. I'm sorry. I, I don't even know how to answer this I think any answer is a good answer. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think I really trust a, a lot of people in some ways. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't have a significant other. I'm not close to my parents. I, I don't have a lot of people that I'm close to. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just sort of natural as a human, like you, you, you sort of have to trust some humans in order to exist. Um, I don't think it's that I've, I've, you know, worked through trauma to some extent that I'm like suddenly trusting of people. I'm, I'm not. Um, I think that part of it is also that because my case was so public and because uh, so much of my uh, work as a reporter involves being very public about my past, um, there's in some ways not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot more to put on the line when it comes to trust. Like I'm not telling you deep personal secrets because they're literally in a book. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so It's kind of like I'm not trust like trusting doesn't quite mean the same thing. Um, it doesn't I'm, I mean, it doesn't mean like I'm going to open up about secrets because I already did that. Um, so, I yeah, again, I really don't have a good answer for that question. No, I think that's I think that's fair. Definitely. Um, I think a lot of like the folks that tune in and listen are they know the value of the relationships. They know that they need people in their life, but sometimes just don't know how to like reach out or ask, or, you know, I don't know if maybe trust is the right word or, you know, vulnerability to like be able to put themselves in proximity to the folks 
that might be able to support them the best. Um, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't go out of my way to, I didn't do anything to make that start, to make that friendship happen. I actually um, hated Chris and would not look at him for a, a year because when I first started at the Chronicle, he wrote a column that I didn't like about jails. And I, I thought it was just, I was like, this is just a terrible take. You know, I hate this dude, whatever. Um, and he was at that point apparently just having to write so many columns a week that he was just sort of like writing whatever and and you know not really having time to sort of research it all so uh i wouldn't i wouldn't even make eye contact with him for like a year i just was like hate this guy giving him death stares every time he walks by and um then he actually came up to my desk and asked about needing help on this one column and we started talking and i realized he was actually cool and that one column that he'd written was really not representative of who he was. And, you know, turns out he sort of just regretted it anyways. And it just like churned it out when he had to do five columns a week or whatever. And uh, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't seek him out at all. Um, he, I think, uh, you know, first of all, needed to talk to me about this, but I think also just uh, has since said that he just sort of saw potential in me and thought that, you know, maybe our friendship would be mutually beneficial. That's great. That's great. So, I mean, I'm hearing you say basically don't judge a book by a cover, even if you <laughs> automatically maybe have a distaste for somebody and be open to people seeing um, the potential that exists within you. I think those are, those are important things. Um, so what what support do you think is best for those that are directly impacted? I think that there's a wide gamut of answers that we get on this, but like as far as people returning into the community, what kind of support networks do you think should be established or ones that maybe might be established already, but should be invested in more? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that one one of the, this is not a thing that I, don't, I even know how one would invest in it per se. Like, I mean, other than on an individual level, but I think that one of the things that is a really necessary support network is, um, and really hard to develop is to find like a sort of good community of quote unquote normies, like people who didn't do time, you know, obviously I have my friends that did time and those are you know, still some of my closest friend circles are all formerly incarcerated people. But uh, I, I think that one of the things that is helpful for, um, you know, being successful after prison is also being able to navigate the world of people who didn't do time. And, you know, some of that means that you have to have a good network of people who didn't do time and understand how to relate to those people. Cause like, if I go to a, you know, dinner party on a Friday night or whatever, like most of my life is about criminal justice at this point, because that's my job. Like that's what I do. Aside from the fact that I did time, so many of my friends did time, I cover criminal justice in prisons. So I will end up getting one drink in me and explaining the, uh, you know, habeas process. <laughs> for 20 minutes and uh you know people might be interested in that but like you also have to develop 
like social skills that have nothing to do with criminal justice and nothing to do with the norms of what life is like in prison. And um, I think that in some ways it's, it, that's something that it seems like a lot of people who've done time struggle with. Like, it's not like we can't just talk to people that haven't done time. Like, of course, I have plenty of friends that haven't done time, but I feel like finding a a, a, a good supportive social circle where you can feel at ease and can, you know, develop a broader ability to talk about, around a whole range of subjects that don't involve prisons. I think that initially developing that can be challenging after you've done a lot of time or even after you've done just a little time. Yeah, I think that is really important. I mean, I it's something unique too that like hasn't necessarily been brought up in any of our our previous interviews. Um, but it definitely it's like hitting me <laughs> because I think about you know um, if I a lot of times I have a hard time you know talking to folks that maybe haven't done time or that just aren't as passionate about this issue because I feel like this is more important than anything. Um, but I can see how that could really stunt a person, you know, when you're getting out. And it's like, if you can only focus on this one thing, um, you're missing out on a lot of opportunities. So I do think that that's important, like you said, for those that have been directly impacted when they're that they're able to like kind of be able to connect with a wide variety of folks. Right. And a wide and engage in a wide variety of topics and interests. And um, yeah, that's really important. Um, definitely. So your passion, it sounds like your passion for investigative reporting, was that prior to or after, was it both prior and after your incarceration? Has it always been kind of an interest to you to write and do investigative work? Um, I mean, I had, I had written some, but I had not done anything investigative at all before, um, before I got arrested. I did you know, I think I had done some a couple magazine stories and I had written some for the college newspaper, but that's really not investigative journalism. That was just sort of covering uh, board meetings, you know, covering, I don't know, student government, writing occasional features. Um, and I never really had any interest in doing like investigative journalism. I just sort of fell into it by accident once I was at the Chronicle and I was, you know, writing all of the sort of like daily stories about like the news stories like you know x y or z thing has happened but you do that long enough and then you have other questions and you want to investigate those questions and you know figure out what sort of fuckery was happening behind the scenes um when x y or z happened and then you just sort of accidentally find yourself being called an investigative journalist well you're very good at it um, Thank definitely <laughs> yeah, lifting that veil. Um, so we're glad you're doing it. Um, you know, you had touched on to these, you know, having these other kind of interests or being able to, you know, expose yourself to folks that might have different interests than you. What are some interests that you have that are totally outside the realm of, um, investigative journalism and, you know, fixing, I, as you say, the fuckery behind the veil of everything. What are some interests that are maybe aside and separate from that? I mean, I, I run, I run a lot. Um, although, uh, not, not as much recently, it's been cold and rainy the past couple weeks. Um, and I, I mean, I like crosswords. That was the thing I did a lot of in 
jail and prison. Um, but you know, I, I actually, I, I'm, I'm pretty obsessive about work. So a lot of my time is working and also, you know, obviously working on a book at the same time is like basically having two jobs and I'm in the process of trying to, um, put together a second book. Do we get a little sneak peek of that? Is there any preview you can give us into your second book? Um, not a whole lot, um, because it's based on a magazine article that hasn't come out yet. So I can't say a lot of details, but I mean, it involves, um, death row and I'm in the stage of writing a proposal. So I don't know if I'll sell it. I don't know if it'll be successful, um, in actually getting from proposal to book stage, but, uh, you know, that's what I'm doing with my, uh, quote unquote free time as of now. So writing is something you like and running. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I do not like, no, no, no. Oh, you I don't like writing. Like, You're just good at it. Nobody likes the process of writing. You <laughs> like having written. Like this is a joke among like, you know, long form narrative writers is that, you know, nobody likes writing. You like having written. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think the actual process of writing is, you know, ultimately fulfilling, but hell when you're doing it. Yes. Um, and that reminds me of like some, some stuff that like Toni Morrison has written that is speaks exactly to what you're saying. That is fair. <laughs> um, okay. So I would love to get some, and I know, I feel like you've already given some of this, but just any encouraging tips and advice that you have for those that are inside and outside um, that have been directly impacted or like, you, I mean, like you even said too, just folks that might not be directly impacted by incarceration, but like they're, you know, working so close to it that they kind of soak up some of that, um, the trauma from it. Right. I think that, I think that's, those folks listen into and, and probably need some advice, but just any kind of tips that you might have an encouragement. Uh, that's incredibly broad. I have no idea. Um, we could break it down. We could do like tips for people inside and then potentially tips for those that have been directly impacted outside that have been released. Um, like tips about what? Just general life tips? Yeah, I think it's like the way I look at it is like there's a lot of folks that listen because they're they're tuning in because they're like, what do I do? Right. What do I do now? What is my next step? Everybody's obviously at like a totally different point. Like some folks are listening and they're maybe they're in prison and they're unfortunately looking at like life without parole. Uh, there might be people that are in prison that are listening that have 10 years or five years left of their sentence. And then there's folks that have gotten out and that are part of, I think, this larger coalition of where do we go next? What do we do now? And I think I know it's very it's like broad, but I think just any kind of like advice or encouragement for people that are kind of going through those different steps in their life. Um, <laughs> I have no idea, dude. I don't feel like I can give advice to lifers, right? Like I, I'm not doing life. I'm not going to pretend like I can understand that. I, I can intellectually understand it, but I can't, you know, I, I, I feel like it would be just really sort of condescending and disrespectful for me to act like I can tell somebody how to face a life sentence. Um, That's fair. And in, in terms of, you know, people who've gotten out, um, I don't believe there's any broad advice I can give to everyone. It varies so much. So many people need just such 
different things. Um, you know, I, I, I can give an example of, of, of something that I think has been really helpful for some people, but it's, it's pretty niche and doesn't really apply to many people. I have, um, you know, I've been doing, I've been TikToking some recently. I wrote a story about prison TikTok, not the kind where people have um, contraband cell phones and are posting shit from the inside. But uh, when people get out, there's also the kind of prison TikTok where they're, you know, building up these huge followings just talking about prison. And some of these people have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, there's one guy, Colin, who has like over 2 million followers. And, um, you know, it's not like that's necessarily a great source of income. I think people assume that you can just support yourself off of TikTok, but it's actually sort of the other opportunities that that opens up, speaking events, things like that. So anyways, I wrote this article and got connected with some of these other prison TikTokers and have been part of this little um, friend group that we've developed of, um, I don't know, maybe eight or so of us who are all on a text chain and we've, you know, met up a few times in person. And it's a really diverse group in terms of where and when we did time and how much time and what it was for. Um, so there's one guy who did like 20 years in Virginia and then woke up one day and was granted clemency and walked out of prison that day uh, after having spent his entire adult life behind bars. So I think, you know, for him, having this group of people who've are, who are at very different places and have done uh, differing amounts of time and have a lot of different perspectives about reintegrating to society afterwards. I think that that's been really helpful for him. And then, you know, there, there's some people who've been out a little longer and um, are, you know, trying to make career shifts or trying to sort of cope with how to, um, you know, how to navigate careers with a felony. Um, this particular group, I think, has been really helpful to all of us because we're both in this, we're both, we're all in this very sort of narrow nexus of we've done time and also we have large public platforms where we're very open about that part of our past. Um, because I think there's definitely certain stressors from being very public about your life, whether it's, you know, Twitter, Instagram, you know, PBS interviews, like whatever. Uh, I think that being very public about your life is um, something that like you definitely need other people who have experienced that to support you and, and help na help you navigate it. And then I also think that obviously reintegrating after prison is also something that's very stressful and it's helpful to have other people who understand that experience. And we've been lucky enough to find a group of people who have both of those sets of experiences and we've all been able to be there for each other. Now, I can't really say that's like necessarily advice for everyone because I, I think that most people will be happier if they do not become social media influencers. <laughs> that's not a path I necessarily recommend. But, um, you know, I do think that that finding a group of people who can understand your very specific experiences and support you is incredibly valuable and it's incredibly hard to come by. So, I mean, I'm I'm glad that we've been able to seize on this. And I don't know, I think that's the closest I can come to sort of broader advice is just um, providing examples of things that have worked for people. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's really appreciated. I, I think that's, you know, a bigger nugget of gold than maybe you realize. And I, you know, and it, like you said, like being a public figure is not for everybody, but like having connection with folks um, and being able to, you know, come together and like build your own 
little support network and community is kind of what I hear you saying. That's, that's important. Um, and there is a tendency to sometimes like isolate, I think. Um, so that, that does seem like, like good advice. Um, any other last, last things that you want to say? I know we don't have a ton of your time left. So anything else that you would like to share with our listeners before we, before we go? Uh, no, I think, yeah, I, 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 I think, I think we're good. I think that's it. Fantastic. And where can people get your book corrections in ink? Yeah, my book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You know, it's in a lot of physical bookstores. That's exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on with us. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us for another episode of The Chat. We appreciate all of our listeners, viewers, and supporters. If you want to know more about The Uplift in The Chat, head over to our website at www.upliftmentors.org. Join our coalition, drop us a donation, or just spread some love and share this around with your friends and family.